Well, if you're new to Calvary Chapel, that was probably awkward for you as well. Um, but our, our, our custom here at Calvary Chapel, uh, our conviction is to uh, uh, teach the scriptures verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. And as you can see, we're currently in, in uh, Matthew chapter 3 and moving our, getting through the chapter at my pace. So uh, why don't you uh, open your Bibles and I'll read the text to you. I do read out of the New King James Version. It's my teaching Bible. It's not the only translation I utilize. Yeah, please stand. That's also our custom for the reading of God's Word. If you didn't stand, we wouldn't judge you. We just talk about you behind your back. <laughs> All right. Oh, my bookmark was moved. Jeremiah will not do this morning. Matthew 3, picking it up in verse 4. I'm going to read through uh, verse 12. Now, John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust, that's grasshoppers, and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Let's pray. Well, Lord, the introduction of the gospel... It was a very serious matter. Um, as John came preaching repentance, Lord, we see the necessity of it, the gravity of it all. And, and I pray that as we continue to introduce ourselves, some of us perhaps for the first time, others again, to these most uh, foundational truths, Lord, I pray that you would teach us and, um, and that you just develop stronger conviction in us, more faith. And Lord, also, I... I Again, I want to thank you for my church family. They are my family. They're my people. And I so love just being a part of them, being one of them. And uh, the privilege that I have uh, to shepherd, to teach, to serve. And I pray, Lord, that our relationship, Lord, that we would grow together. And I do pray that, Lord, day by day, that um, you would exercise my senses so that I could be better at what you've called me to do. Uh, for your glory, Lord, for the sake of others. So thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, go ahead and be seated. How many guys were actually with us at the old building? There's a handful of you. Yeah. Um, it's really weird to go back and stand in the auditorium because uh, I think there's 130 chairs in it, and the auditorium, I think, is like 35 by 55 or 60. And... It's like the, the bulk of the building. And um, it's just weird going back and 
But what a blessing just thinking about, you know, all that happened there and, and um, just people, you know. People is where it's at. And now I have you guys in my family too, and it's really sweet. So thank you for just allowing me to be here. So as we say here at Calvary Chapel, people vote with their feet. And um, you voted. Here you are. So, yeah. Anyway, uh, I need to get to my, my text. So, uh, yeah, let's, let's go back to verse 4. It says, now John himself was clothed in camel's hair. I asked for a service. How many of you guys have dressed in real camel's hair? You did? Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm glad. <laughs> With a, a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts or grasshoppers and wild honey. Wild honey. Then all Judea and all the region, I'm sorry, then Jerusalem, all Judea, all the region of, around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, the, that, that whole area there uh, that it, the text is talking about, it's quite large, and where John is is not particularly easily accessible, okay? Uh, and remember, it was, people would get there by foot. So I mention that because I'm trying to give you an idea of the, the hype that was going on in Israel at this time, that somebody dressed like he was and eating the things that he did, people were drawn to that. It's a huge deal, okay? And as, as I've said, it, it had nothing to do with his diet, but it did have much to do with the way he was dressed, the way he was dressed. John was dressed like another prophet from the Old Testament. Does anybody know who that is? Elijah. That's right, 2 Kings 1.8. So he's dressed like Elijah, he's out in the desert, and he's, he's really preaching like Elijah, the prophet, who was constantly calling Israel to repentance, okay? And so by John showing up in the desert, looking the way that he did, preaching the way that he was, he got the attention of all of Israel. And the reason he did, it's, it's because of what the prophet Malachi had said. And this is what he said. Of course, he's speaking for God. He says, behold... I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So because of Malachi, the Jews were expecting Elijah to come before that, that day. But according to uh, the predominant rabbinical thinking of, of that day, the Jews believed that the Messiah would come after Elijah and just before the great day. Th there's that... You know, the day of the Lord is called a few things in the scriptures. The great day of his wrath, the day of the Lord, the great and dreadful day. Uh, it all has to do with God executing his judgment upon the earth. So they were thinking in chronology, Elijah, Messiah, and the mess at the end. That's what's in their minds. And, uh, and you know what? They were, they were right. Okay, they had a few things mixed up in uh, what we would call their eschatology, their views of the end times. But for the most part, they had it all together. And I'll demonstrate that as we go. But all of Israel was taught this particular view. Look at this here with the disciples. And his disciples, Jesus' disciples, asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Why? Okay, so the, the disciples, every little boy grew up with this in Israel. 
Israel had at this time what was called the pedagogue, and it was school for boys, and that's where they would learn Torah. That's where they would learn about Jewish eschatology. And so all of Israel was thinking this way. The Sadducees probably not because they were liberal and they didn't really believe the scriptures that much, or at least anything really uh, supernatural. Um, so Israel was expecting Elijah to come first. Another way to demonstrate this is when the priests and the Levites, because uh, you know, they heard about John as well, they went down to the river because they wanted to know who he was. And so they came down and they were inquiring, and they immediately, uh, when they said, who are you, John said, well, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Messiah. And so you know what they said then? Then are you Elijah? Are you Elijah? John replied, I am not. John 1, 19 through 21. But the first uh, specific question to John was, are you Elijah? Are you Elijah? So the Jews were expecting him to come in advance. And as far as anybody could tell, John was indeed Elijah the prophet. He was to them. He was dressed like him. He was preaching repentance. And if he was Elijah the prophet, then what's next? Messiah, the Christ. That's right. Who would initiate the day of the Lord. There's more to this. It's no surprise that the Bible-believing Jews were expecting him. Um, for a number of reasons at this time, uh, Israel, and Israel had been now for quite a while, been on high alert when it came to the Messiah. People were thinking Messiah. They were expecting him imminently to show up at any time. So when John shows up on the scene, what does that do to their expectation? It just intensifies everything. Also, uh, one of the major factors was that Israel was under the oppression of Rome. And when we look at the, the Old Testament prophets, they talk about Messiah coming and delivering Israel from foreign oppressors. And this is the worst oppression that Israel has had in their borders ever. And it's been going on for quite some, some time. So John, and because of all the other circumstances surrounding that, he's, he's got them all hyped up about the Messiah coming. And so people are flocking to the desert to see him. Uh, another thing to add to this, I just want to demonstrate that the Jews were thinking fairly accurately. Just before John the Baptist was conceived, the angel spoke to John's dad, and he perpetuated prophecy. Look what he said to Zacharias. He says that his son, John, would go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now this one verse, the angel ties in three prophecies from the Old Testament, all talking about John. Yeah. So Malachi 4, 5 and 6, Isaiah 40, verse 3, and Isaiah 29, verse 24. He just snatches them all over uh, from the prophets and he throws them into one thing. And uh, it's, it's great. So according to the angel, John would come in the spirit and power of Elijah. That's going to be important later with the purpose of turning the hearts of the fathers and their children toward one another. And he says, Zacharias, your son is going to be the forerunner of Messiah. In the text, it says the Lord. In the context of the prophecy, it's Messiah, the Lord. Things are getting crazy in Israel. Could you imagine being there? Because the one hope of Israel was what? Messiah. And they're under oppression. Life is miserable under the hand of Rome. And you've got 
Elijah's showing up and he's preaching repentance and he's eating grasshoppers. But everything is getting wild, okay? Now, uh, I know that the debate about John's actual identity, some of you are, are probably wanting me to talk about is John actually Elijah, uh, perhaps a second coming, or if he only came in the spirit and power of Elijah, or will Elijah actually come just before the great and dreadful day of the Lord? Uh, I'm going to address that later because the disciples are going to ask Jesus about it. And Jesus is going to get a, re- a reply, and I wanna, I'll talk about it then. I want to stay to our text right now. So Jerusalem, Judea, all the region around the Jordan went out to him. He's just draining all the surrounding territories of the Jews. Uh, he doesn't mention Galilee uh, directly, but Galilee is included. When we go to the book of John, we find that John has disciples, and they're from Galilee. And those disciples become the disciples of someone else. Who's that? Of Jesus. John points his disciples to Christ. And we have people coming also from the east side of the river, which is the, the, uh, the territory of Perea. So Jews are just coming from all over the place. Now, if Jews are coming as far as the north in Galilee, and then coming down to this, we're talking that they've come down for more than a week. Now, that's a big deal in agrarian culture when you abandon things for a week. So people are sacrificing to be a part of this. They are excited. Israel is in a complete buzz. They went to see John, and then something interesting was happening, something that was never done before. They were being baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. So in response to his preaching, the Jews especially were confessing their sins, submitting to baptism. You guys, baptism is weird. It is. It, it comes out of nowhere. So it's important to talk about. So first, I want to talk about why people would confess their sins. I want to talk about confession. And then, and then I want to talk about, I'll use the rest of our time to talk about baptism. Baptism. So people were confessing their sins because John was telling them to repent. Now, it's not like today where people, so many people in the world today, when I share the gospel, they don't understand even what repentance means. I think a lot of people in the church don't either. Uh, Many people think that repentance means to confess today. But back then, people were like, what's repentance and, and what do you want me to repent of? No, they knew exactly what John was saying. He was saying, you need to repent of sin. So this, this is where the confession comes from. Now, the word confess, which is different than repentance, does not simply mean to say something. That's not what it means. It means to agree with a verdict about you. It means to agree with a verdict about you. Another word that the, um, that the apostles use in their letters is, is, is a very similar word. It's, it's homologeo. And it means to say again, to say again. So in confession, what we're doing is we're, we're hearing a verdict from God about us. You are sinful. You are a transgressor. And, and God is, he's specific, isn't he? So he, he addresses specific sin. Confession would be me saying again what he has said about me. You understand? It's agreeing with the verdict. It's concurring with what has been said. So in response, the people were concurring with John's verdict about, about them. They were saying, yes. It's true. I am a sinner. I, I do look with lust. Okay? I am critical of my spouse. I use substances that alter my sobriety. I'm a fornicator. I'm a, you fill in the blank. They, they weren't just saying, yes, I'm a sinner. 
No, these people were vocalizing their transgressions. They were being specific. It doesn't say they confessed that they were sinners. They were confessing their individual sins. This was serious stuff. It wasn't generic. They were specific. Now, specific is good. How many guys like to be specific about your sins? How many like to be specific when you're confessing your sins? You enjoy that? We don't enjoy it, okay? But it's super important because when we're being specific in our confessions, it doesn't protect our ego. And people will do a lot of things to protect their ego, okay? But being specific, it's brutally honest. It exposes our pride to open shame, doesn't it? When you, when you confess what you've actually done, it exposes you to open shame. And the problem is, is that those who protect their pride, they're really only doing harm to themselves. They're stalling maturity. Okay? They're, they're stopping themselves from growing spiritually. Now, I'm reluctant to believe that someone is genuinely contrite over their sin and truly wanting to repent if they insist on hiding what they've actually done. I have troubles with that. Okay, because in the scriptures, we see that godly sorrow, godly shame leads to confession, and it leads to a life of repentance. Okay? Now, one example of this, uh, David is a good example as well. The Psalms are filled with shameful confessions. Uh, Psalm 51. Um, but Paul, I, I think that he, to me, his confessions are the most moving in the scriptures. And, and the thing is, you kind of have to go through multiple epistles to gather them all up. Because he's actually communicating this to all of the churches, saying, this is who I was, this is what I did. And when you gather it all together, Paul describes himself before his conversion as becoming a madman. He became insane in regard to this, this sect of Jews that were believing in this Messiah, who he thought was a false Messiah. And so he started hunting Christians down, hunting them. It's, he says that he tortured some. And what he was doing in torturing them, he was compelling them to blaspheme the name of Christ. That's what he, he says I was doing. I imprisoned some, and I executed others. That's pretty honest, isn't it? That was something Paul had to carry around with him. But this is what I love. He didn't carry it quietly. He confessed it. He brought it out into the light. So in my experience, those who are generic about their sins, they, they want relief from the guilt they want the benefits of forgiveness, but they really don't, they're really not intent on repenting. Do you get it? People that hide it, they, they, they're struggling in their conscience. They want relief. They want the benefits of forgiveness, but because they're not willing to come out and say, this is what I've done, they're not really bent on repenting, and it, it really does no good. Now, when I say specific about sins, I, I don't mean that when you confess your sins, you have to give a play-by-play account of everything that you did, okay? But if you're a fornicator, just come out and say it. Confess it. Be honest with everybody, okay? Uh, bring it to the light. Expose it. Consider what Jesus said. He said, and this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. They love darkness rather than light. So that rather than having their deeds exposed, they stay in the darkness. You guys understand? Yeah. We need the light. Someone that confesses that they're a sinner is really no confession at all. The confession is specific. So another question, and I, I'm going to have a lot of questions and answer here. 
So who should we confess our sins to? You ever confess your sins to the wrong person and regretted it? You confess your sins to someone who struggles with the sin of gossip? That's not okay. Okay. <laughs> well, for someone who is just getting saved, they certainly need to go to God with their confession. But they should also find a believer who will encourage them in the scriptures, who will encourage them to find a fellowship who is committed to the exposition of the scriptures and who's committed to obeying what is taught. Okay? For the believer, because believers sin, is that true? We sin. And any of you that are honest, you sin daily. Okay? And if you don't think you do, you have a family member that will confess your sins for you. Okay? <laughs> Confession for us to God is imperative. But scripture also insists that we confess our sins to others. It's James chapter 5 or 16, Acts 19, 18. Now some people fuss and say, well, the word in the Greek in James actually means false. So it's really not talking about our sins. Okay. Romans 4.25 says that Jesus was lifted up on the cross and executed for your faults. So do you think those are a big deal? That God saw that your faults were so bad that the only thing that could deal with that fault was the death of his son. Okay, so let's not, let's not mess around with all of that. If, a, if an apostle used a synonym for sin, guess what it is? It's a sin. Okay, so don't, you won't fool me if you play that game, all right? Sins are sins. If it's a transgression, if it's iniquity, if it's wickedness, if it's sin, are those all sins? Okay, I was just checking. But to whom do we confess? Some people are surprised to find out that they don't have to confess their sins to a priest, to a priest. Now, there is no instruction for us in the New Testament to confess to a priest. Not a single example. And there's not an example of anyone in the New Testament doing it. In fact, there's no such office as priest in the New Testament. I've talked to many people that are surprised to learn that. The only priest in the New Testament is Christ, who is our high priest. Now, you could speak, you know, generically and say, yes, every individual believer that collectively we make up a kingdom of priests, but that's not an individual in the church. That's us. That's every single person. So I would encourage you to never confess to anyone who holds the office of priest because they don't exist. You get it? Not in the New Testament, they don't. You have to go to another place that teaches something other than the New Testament to find one. Is that fair to say? Okay. So for us, find a trusted believer who loves you and will hold you accountable. And they're not going to tell you that your sin is okay because sin is never okay. I told first service that oftentimes when I sin against my own kids, and I do it more than I'm, I would like, but my youngest son, he'll say, Dad, it's okay. And I have to then correct him and say, no, son, sin is never okay. What daddy did was wrong. It was sinful. Now you can forgive me, but you can't say it's okay because it's not. Because if it's okay, I can just do it again. So sin is not okay. Don't ever tell anybody it's okay. You can say to them, I forgive you. And then you'll know if they're genuine. Some people, when you say, I forgive you, they get upset. Isn't that weird? I'm sorry. Oh, I forgive you. What? <laughs> now, according to Jesus, whose word is final, he says that if you've sinned against someone, you have to go to them. You have to go to them. Matthew 5, 23 and 24. Now, if it's some personal sin, you want someone who will come alongside you and they're going to accept nothing less from you than repentance and faithfulness. You get it? They will expect nothing less. 
They will demand that you repent because they love you, okay? And they'll demand that you get right and be faithful. If they don't expect those things from you, understand they don't love you and they can't be trusted with your spirituality. Find someone else. Also, I don't mean that you should confess every single sin to another person. If you do that, you will exhaust people, okay? Now, I've, I know people that have really, really tender conscience. And so any little thing, even if they thought they sinned when they didn't, they just have to tell you and they have to, they have, they have to get clean from it. Um, I, I don't get it completely, okay? But I've worked with people like that. Um, sin, just any degree of sin is just haunting to them. But I wouldn't encourage you to confess every little sin uh, to someone. You should certainly confess habitual sins, besetting sins, crippling sins, sins that hurt you, sins that hurt other people. Confess those, okay? If your conscience continues to bug you and you can't find relief because of a particular sin, you should confess it. Get it into the light. Does it matter what it is? No, if it's bugging you, get it out, okay? Now, if your conscience doesn't bother you about something you're doing that is condemned in Scripture, you're, you're at a state of emergency now. And you need to get people around you to pray for you because there's something now wrong with your heart and it's something that only God can change. Okay, now, I, I remember when I first came to Christ, um, there was things that did not bother me. And that bothered me. Does that make sense? It bothered me that, that I wasn't bothered in here. And so I, I had to pray and ask God to restore my conscience in regard to those things. Because what I had done, I had essentially seared my conscience in those areas. And uh, so af after a time, after seeking God's face, I became tender again to those things. I became conscious of it in my life. If you have that in your life, and trust me, it's possible for Christians to experience that, you need to get people around you to pray for you until God restores that, gets that scar tissue off your heart. Amen? So go to the Lord and pray. Let's go back to our text. We're baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sin. So let's talk about baptism now. Um, the strange thing about baptism is that it's new, really. No Old Testament there's no, there's no Old Testament example of it. No Old Testament prophet was talking about it. So John shows up in the wilderness, and he's doing it. Now, there were similar kind of maybe things like baptism. There was Jewish washings, but it was always for Gentiles who were converting to Judaism. There was no such concept like this for a Jew because they were the covenant people. So what John is doing out in the desert is very strange to everyone. Okay, they don't understand. In fact, in John, the, the, the Jewish leadership, the Pharisees will say, why are you baptizing Jews? That makes no sense to us. So this whole thing about baptism is very strange. And so I want to talk about what it is. What is baptism? Who's it for? And when should someone be baptized? Now, if you've noticed or if you've been around, you know that not everybody gives the same answer to the concepts of baptism. Some of you come from uh, liturgical backgrounds, sacramental backgrounds, and they did things a lot different. They taught baptism differently. How many guys come from a, a sacramental background? Some of you are like, what's sacramental? Catholic, Episcopalian, Anglican, Presbyterian, things like that. Okay? Uh, some of you uh, may have come from Lutheran uh, background. That's different. Um, not everybody agrees. In fact, uh, in church history, 
uh, in, as the Reformation was moving along, the differences had become so bad that professed Christians were killing other professed Christians because they disagreed on issues of baptism. It's a very sad part of our history. Now, I, I'm not confident that somebody can be a Christian and, and kill other Christians for disagreeing with them. Uh, but that's, that's a whole other issue. So let's look at baptism. And we want to try to avoid what the scriptures do not say. And when you study baptism, in light of where you've come from, you go, the scriptures don't say a lot. Where do they get all of that? It's amazing what we get from what the scriptures don't say, right? And something I've learned is I, I, when I'm talking to people, I try to figure out what it is they want the scriptures to say. And you guys do that too. I do it. But what do we want the scriptures to say? We have to be on guard for that. So let's start with the definition. The, the Greek word for baptism, for baptize, is baptizo. It comes from the root babto, which means to dip. It means to submerge or immerse. So when John was baptizing people, he was immersing them in the water of the Jordan River. That's what he was doing. If John was doing something else like pouring water or sprinkling water, uh, he could have used a different word. Matthew could have used a different word like uh, rantizo or proscusis. Uh, Pronunciation is terrible. But Matthew, like all of the other New Testament writers, they use the word baptizo, to immerse, to dip. And there's every indication in the scriptures that immersion is what they did. They dunked people. They dunked people. Okay. In fact, uh, John was baptizing someplace one time because there was much water there. As I told first service, it doesn't prove that he was dunking people, but it, it surely uh, follows with our argument, doesn't it? The definition of the word, lots of water, all of that. Yeah. Now, as you know, there are people that pour or sprinkle to baptize people. Uh, we don't do that here at Calvary Chapel. And the reason we don't is just because there is zero evidence for it in the New Testament. Okay? If, I had, if I saw an example of it in the scriptures, or if the scriptures taught me to do that, I wouldn't have any problem with it. I think that's important to say. I don't have a problem with the doctrine. Just show me where it is in the scriptures. You got it? I do have to bring it up. I told first service, uh, have you ever watched a Greek Orthodox baptism of babies? If you haven't, go to YouTube and watch. It's impressive. It's violent. It's, it's insane. I mean, they, they have a, a huge bowl of water, and they grab this baby, and the priest will lift it, the child up over his head and slam him down in the water, and then he lifts him up again, and the baby is freaking out. The mother has to be held back, and he does it three times. I will not be doing that to your babies, okay? <laughs> you have to watch it. I mean, it's, it's eye-opening. My kids just... <laughs> anyway, we don't do that, uh, but we do immerse people because of the definition of the word, because of uh, what we see in the scriptures. We do it gently. Uh, we have done it in very, very cold water. The last baptism we did was... It took a while to get the feeling back in my extremities. So historically, this is called baptism by immersion, okay, by, by dunking people. Perhaps a more important issue to address is what happens when someone is baptized. I think this issue is super important. The mode of baptism, I don't think is the most important, but
but I think we should follow what we see in the scriptures and, and uh, the teaching that's there. But what actually happens to someone when they get baptized? That's huge. In Mark 1, 4, and in Luke chapter 3, verse 3, John's baptism is called a baptism of repentance. Later on in our chapter, it's a baptism unto repentance. What does that mean? Um, A.T. Robertson, he's a, a Greek scholar, he says, John heralded a repentance kind of baptism, baptism marked by repentance. So apart from getting wet, what does baptism do to the person baptized? Well, what does our text say? Nothing. There's no explanation. It's just totally silent. Nothing is said. It doesn't say that anything happens to them. It just says that they were dunked in the water. They were getting baptized in response to John's preaching of repentance. So we have this chronology, this, this, this chronology in the text that, that goes, John preached repentance. And, and this is important, by the way. People were inspired to repent. People came down into the water confessing their sins. And then John dunked them. So in the text, all of those things, repentance and confession, happened before they were dunked. You understand? Did something happen to them? Some people insist that something does. In fact, some people believe that it's actually baptism that empowers someone to repent. It's very interesting. Here's what Mark and Luke say that add to this. It says, he was preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. For the remission of sins. By the way, this is not helpful at all. It's just not. The word for is what causes most of the controversy because that Greek word can be used in two very different ways. And as A.T. Robertson says, it's all good Greek. It's all good Greek. Let me explain. In these passages, the word can express two very different things. It can mean that people were baptized in order to be forgiven. How many of you guys grew up learning that? You got baptized in order to be forgiven, which makes baptism the means by which someone is forgiven. Forgiveness would then be a result of it. That is to say, people got baptized to get forgiven. To get forgiven. But the word for can also mean that people were baptized in reference to forgiveness of sins. Or because of. Why did you get baptized? Oh, because of the forgiveness of sins. That makes baptism not the means, but the occasion by which someone demonstrates that they are forgiven. Oh, man. So it's not a matter of what the text says now. It's a matter of what the text means. What it means. Were people getting baptized in order to be forgiven? Or were they baptized because they were forgiven? Another Greek scholar, Kenneth Wiest, he says, baptism is the believer's testimony to the fact that his sins are remitted. Here, the, the, the baptism is because of the fact that the recipient's sins have been remitted. So Wiest is saying that we don't get baptized in order to be forgiven. We get baptized because we've been forgiven. So listen carefully. Baptism identified people with John's preaching of repentance. It demonstrates that they had responded by repenting of their sin and that God had responded to their repentance by forgiving their sin. And so the person would then yield to water baptism to symbolize the washing away of sin. Yeah, this interpretation doesn't see baptism as a means of forgiveness, but a symbol of it. So what happens to a person when they get baptized? They provide a powerful testimony of what has already happened to them. 
You see, baptism is not when it happened. It looks back to what happened. It's a memorial. And Paul would say it was a memorial of your death, Romans chapter 6, when you were taken under the water, like being buried with Christ, he says, and then of your resurrection when you came up out of the water to live a new kind of life. So here at Calvary Chapel, we believe that baptism is a symbol, okay? It's symbolic. We do not believe that baptism is the means by which anyone is forgiven, okay? We don't believe that. Another important question, who should be baptized? Who should be baptized? Some people insist that we should baptize our babies, pedo-baptism or infant baptism. And this is even, uh, gets more difficult, is not everyone that baptizes their babies do it for the same reason. We need some reason behind some of all this. One group believes that we should baptize our babies in order to save them. That is uh, baptismal regeneration, or by being baptized, then you're saved, whether it's a baby or an adult. So when Lutherans baptize their babies, they believe that baby is being saved, being saved. The other group believes that we should baptize our babies to incorporate them into the covenant of Christ. They believe that just as circumcision was the sign of the old covenant, baptism is the sign of the new covenant. And just as babies were circumcised in the old covenant, we should then baptize our babies in the new covenant. Are you guys confused? Don't be confused, okay? Now, to be clear, those who baptize their babies in order to incorporate them into the covenant, they do not believe that their babies were saved at that time. They believe that those babies then must go on to trust in Christ. By baptism, they believe that they become children of the covenant, but they're not saved until they believe. Now, okay, fine. But should babies be baptized in the first place? That's my question. What does the New Testament say about infant baptism? Nothing, nothing. There's no evidence in the New Testament of a baby being baptized, not a single one. Jesus and the apostles, they didn't teach us to baptize babies, and they never practiced it, okay? It wasn't taught. It wasn't practiced. It's foreign to the New Testament because of that, okay? Here at Calvary Chapel, we do not baptize babies. If I had, again, I don't have a problem with the doctrine in itself, but until I see it taught and practiced by the apostles, I ain't touching it, okay? I don't go near it. So who then should be baptized? In the New Testament, only one kind of person was baptized. Who's that? Repentant believers. Repentant believers. In the New Testament, you ain't coming to the water unless you're repentant and you trust in Christ. John wouldn't baptize somebody and the apostles wouldn't baptize somebody without those prerequisites. So because of this, we practice what is historically called believer's baptism. Okay, believer's baptism. We won't baptize you unless you've demonstrated repentance and faith in Christ. So who then should be baptized? Well, if you're a believer, if you're a believer, Christ commands you to be baptized. It's not an option for the believer. I know that it's become an option for some reason, but Jesus commands that if you are a believer, you should be baptized, not in order to be forgiven, not, not in order to be saved, but in obedience to Christ. You understand? It's out of obedience to Christ. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. So baptism then is a test of your love for Jesus. So if you're a believer, you should be baptized, as I told first service, unless you're deathly allergic to water. None of you are. Or you're a thief on a cross next to Jesus. 
and you're not. So if you're a believer, what should you do? You should be baptized. That's right. Now, I'm, I often work with people that have come out of a particular cult. Not a particular cult, many different cults. And baptism and communion oftentimes freak them out because of its association with the cult that they were in. Now, I want to be sensitive to that. And I've worked with tons of people uh, since I've been in ministry that struggle with the ordinances of Christ. The, the time has to come where you, you trust Jesus with what he wants you to do and you separate it from where you've come from and say, Jesus, I, I, I trust you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to do what you say. And by your act of obedience, you will experience liberty. You will, trust me. I've seen it many, many times. Okay? It's good to obey Christ. It's good to be baptized. Now, um, that was kind of a crash course on baptism. There's much more to say, uh, but as we go through the scriptures, uh, we'll say more about it. Uh, if you want to be baptized, come talk to me, and we'll talk about all of the essential issues. And um, I have two people that want to be baptized right now. I don't know if they want to be baptized in winter water or summer water yet. Um, I'm foolish enough to do either one. Um, so, and that's actually my story of baptism. Um, I, was, I was baptized um, LDS at age eight, because you're not a sinner until you're eight in the LDS church. Um, it's not true, by the way. Um, you're welcome to sit in our nursery <laughs> and get it. Uh, and then I was baptized as a, a kid, but I didn't know what I was doing. And so, yeah. Then I was actually in my second year of Bible college studying baptism, and the Lord said, you haven't been baptized. So I went to my pastor and I said, I need to be baptized. And he goes, well, we're going to schedule a baptism for the spring. I said, no, I have to be baptized now. So in the winter in Boise, we filled up a huge horse uh, trough, and um, I got baptized. I just knew that I hadn't, and I needed to obey Christ now. Now, some people may not have that conviction. Uh, they can wait till summertime. If you don't want to get baptized right now, it's okay. I, I won't judge you. That was what was impressed on me. I was finishing uh, my fourth year of school, and it was time. Okay. I was going into the ministry unbaptized. Not cool. <laughs> so anyway, uh, if you want to talk about baptism, uh, let's do it. Uh, next week, we'll talk about uh, John's rebuke to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It's always a good time. Uh, he starts the tradition. Jesus continues it. And uh, it'd be good. Last thing I want to say uh, before we pray, you can go ahead and stand up, please, for prayer. And I, I'll address this uh, as we go through the Gospels. But um, I, I, you know, when I went into ministry, I grew up in the, the, this whole thing about if you're going to be, especially a youth pastor, you have to be hip, you have to be cool, you have to identify with your audience. Otherwise, you won't draw people. I grew up in all of that stupidity. Okay? And I remember when I was leaving to youth ministry, one of the, uh, a friend of mine, uh, older friend of mine, he, he, he shoved his Bible in my chest and he said, you win them with this and you'll keep them with this. Don't play those games. Now, the reason, one of the things that makes that whole philosophy so stupid, and it hasn't been successful, by the way, uh, it's drawn many people into buildings, but they quickly fall away. And, but 
what, what really speaks against that is John. Youth pastors want to dress like they're the kids in order to attract them. And senior pastors want to be hip. They want to be cool because they want to attract young people. Look, John was the only guy wearing camel's hair. And he was probably, other than the Essenes who lived in the desert, he was one of few that were eating grasshoppers. Okay, I don't think it's ever been cool. And yet he was, all of Israel was funneling to John. And it was all about the message. It was all about the quality of the message. And so I told first service, you know, whether you like Ray Comfort or not, whatever. But Ray always talks about it's the quality of the message, the gospel. He says, any idiot can sow seed. Whether you wear camel hair or you stand on your head, I don't care. If you preach the gospel in its, in its pure sense, that's what will draw people and save them. Amen? So don't, don't listen to the world. That's, that's the world's way of doing things. Now we want to identify with people. Paul says, I want to become all things to all men. But Paul didn't, do you know what I'm saying? You get it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that your word is, contains all of the quality. As Job said, I've treasured your word above my necessary food. Moses said, it is your life. Jesus, you said that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of, of God. Lord, it's your word. It's powerful. It's living. So help us, Lord, to be drawn to it, to experience your goodness through it. And Lord, I also pray for my church family because I know people struggle with sin. I pray that you'd give them courage. You'd help them to be humble and that whatever is going on in their life, that they would bring it to the light and they would confess it. And Lord, that they would be wise enough to find a brother or a sister who loves them enough to hold their feet to the fire and to demand from them repentance and faithfulness. Just help them, Lord. Help all of us. Because if we're not in sin now, we will be. And Lord, I pray for anybody that is struggling with um, submitting to baptism. Lord, there's always benefits to obedience. There's always liberty. So I pray that you'd move upon their heart and they would desire to identify with you in this way, to obey you, and then have the joy that goes with it. Lord, thank you for my church family. Just, just bless them, I pray. Lavish your grace upon them. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, love you guys.